All right, guys, I'm going to do something a little different, and I think if it's okay with the video people, I might pop down here. All right, we're good. Carla's going to join me for the second half of this. So some of you know, Ken's on vacation this week, and um, I was at a conference with our board president, Carla Huff, which is why the, the service is maybe a little bumpier than usual. Forgive us. I got in about 9 o'clock last night, and I was like, you know, like, sermon prep? Ugh, I'm not going to do any sermon prep. We're just going to have Carla and I share about this conference, and you guys, it was amazing. So, you know, I usually write out my sermons, but today, th this is my sermon. <laughs> and I'm just going to share a little bit more from the heart here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a little bit of context before, before we tell you about this conference. So usually, if you're newer here, we often do a little bit more, you know, like, you know, digging into the scripture, and we'll do a little of that. I, I actually had Abby read Amos for a reason, and I, I had an older person read it, and not one of the six-year-olds, because I thought it was maybe a little bit intense for a little one. But let me start out by just giving a little bit of context about sort of church history. So when you look at the last 2,000 years of the church, one of the big questions as people have followed Jesus is, what do you do when there are like matters of dispute? Some of you have heard this, but this is for those of you who haven't. And the church has always had this larger conversation of like, you know, how do you determine how can you be together within a community? And for the first about 400 years of the church, they didn't have a compiled Bible, so to speak. And so they used several things to hold them in unity, but mostly they were, they were looking at things like, um, are your practices producing good things? If you're from a church background, the fruit of the Spirit. You know, are there love and joy and peace and patience? Are all these good things coming from it? You've got different rituals that talk about the life of the church, like sharing the communion table together. You've got the different traditions. You've got the life of the practices of prayer, sort of those mystical encounters with Jesus, and you've got the community of believers. Well, about the time that the Roman Empire adopted Christianity, Christianity started to get a little bit more structured. And the church started to answer that question, how do you determine what you do in matters of dispute? Like, who, where does final authority of the church lie? And we started to answer that with the Pope and the Magisterium. So mostly large of Christianity was Roman Catholic, and so it became a more hierarchical structure. And we placed the, um, the authority of the church with a person or with a group of people who were at the top of that hierarchy. Well, inevitably, whenever you have a lot of unchecked power, you end up having some corruption. And so about 500 years ago, there were a group of people we call the reformers who started really complaining about all of the corruption that was rampant within the church. And they started to say, you know, gosh, like humans are just fallible and corrupt. There's got to be a better way that we can kind of know with certainty what it is that God wants for God's people. And they said, you know, maybe the Bible is something that we can use as that source. And at the time, very few people were literate. Um, and so one of the effects of this idea that the Bible could be the primary source for the authority of the church was that literacy started to spread around the world. But even with that movement over the last 500 years, there's still at least a billion people on this planet that are not literate, which begs the question, like, well, who gets to be the authority? The people who are literate, who tend to have more money and education? You know, there's, there's some critiques of of that landing, but I think the overall thing that we have to look at is what's been the effect 
of saying that the Bible is the final authority for the church and it's clear and it's concise and if everybody reads it, they'll come to the same conclusion, which is what the reformers thought. And so here we are, 500 years out, and the effect of that has been in at least 30,000 denominations because we have all sorts of different ways that we feel like we can read it and that it's clear. Actually, the last number I heard was 35,000 denominations. And so it's been a time where, where people have started to step back and say, okay, this doesn't seem like it's working for the life of the church. It just seems like it's sowing even more division and it seems like maybe we're using the Bible in a way that it's not meant to be used. And maybe we're even reading it wrong. Um, there's, especially in American Christianity, there's been a real stream of saying that the Bible is literal and using it to weaponize against people, especially people who are oppressed or of a minority status. And so for the last few decades, there have been some people who are like church historians or people looking at the life of the church and they say, you know what, it seems like there's actually something going on here that's much bigger than just, than just like some little cracks in the church because we all feel the disparate parts of the American church. And they said, it seems like there's like a new reformation that's going on where the authority of the church is actually making a shift again. And when these big reformations go on, it often takes 100, 200 years to work out. And if I were a guessing woman, I'd say we're about in the middle of that. And when you're in the middle of a big change like that, it is hard to see clearly. You know, and you're just kind of following the spirit as you can. But the thinking is, is that the authority of the church is actually shifting back to a little bit more what it was when Christianity first began. It's shifting back to the Holy Spirit. And it's saying, we've been on a quest to find a certain answer and that the Bible can give us this certainty and we can know without any question. And we're saying, you know, maybe, maybe this whole faith thing isn't about certainty. Maybe there's a certain amount of messiness. Maybe the Holy Spirit is known not just through like what's been written down in the Bible and contained within these pages, but maybe the Holy Spirit is actually what the Bible, I think, tells us in the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit has been breathed into God's people, is accessible by everyone, that the spirit of love can be um, interacted with and experienced with prayer practices that's always lived on in different segments of the church, and that maybe that's just a little bit messier than we would like it to look. And so about a hundred years ago, when scholars are looking back, they're saying, you know, really the start of this, what they're calling the age of the spirit, probably started with the rise of the Pentecostal movement. And so the Pentecostal movement is often pinned down to 1906, called the Azusa Street Revival. Has anybody here heard of Azusa Street? Few of you know Azusa Street. It's not told, this history of the church isn't often told, um, I think in a lot of our churches. But it's actually like Pentecostalism, don't get scared by that word if you don't come from a Pentecostal background, all right? Just hold that thought. Pentecostalism is the fastest growing branch of Christianity in the world. We're looking, they're looking at probably 800 million people claiming some sort of Pentecostal experiential element of Christianity by the year 2025. Pentecostalism, I've got plenty of critiques of it. I wrote about them in my book. But there does seem to be something about that experiential nature that is sort of fizzing within the global church. So Azusa Street, the story begins like this. The Azusa Street revival in Los Angeles was fermented by a man named William Seymour. And William Seymour was a black man who was the son of former slaves. 
and he grew up in the bayous of Louisiana. And so this son of slaves from the bayous of Louisiana grew up in, a, in an atmosphere where there was a little bit more, um, like he had an openness to spirituality. He grew up in a place where there was a lot of like voodoo and different practices that had been going on. And while he was Christian, we think that this sort of um, shaped some of his openness to the idea that maybe we could experience God as we are. And so William Seymour, he moved to Indianapolis, my hometown, and he started going to two different churches. He went to a traditionally black church. He was in an African Methodist Episcopal church. You might call them the AME churches today. And he was also attending another church called, oh, let's see if I can remember it. I think it's Evening Light. And it was an odd little church in that it allowed women to preach and it was diverse. It was about half black, half white. And at that time and place, you did not see a whole lot of either one of those things. And so we think that that shaped his openness to being like, oh, well, maybe if the Spirit is leading women to be able to preach and teach, oh, this is interesting. Maybe God can do things that are outside of our, our frameworks of thinking. Well, then he, he made a couple other moves. He went down to Houston, and he ran into a teacher named Charles Parham. And Charles Parham was another person, he was a white man who was teaching that the gifts of the Spirit or this interaction with the Holy Spirit was alive and accessible today. And William Seymour was like, ooh, that, that, that kind of seems like that's what I've been feeling in my spirit. And so he talked to Charles Parham and he decided to go to his Bible school up in Topeka, Kansas. Well, Charles Parham, like most uh, white Christians of that era, was an incredible white supremacist and he adhered to the Jim Crow laws, and he had a belief that Africa was created for black people and America was created for white people. And I want especially us white people to hear that this was about 100 years ago, that was just easily accepted theology within the white American church. This is not that long ago. And because Charles Parham held to that belief, William Seymour had to sit outside the classroom because he wasn't allowed to sit in the classroom with the white students. But William Seymour sat outside that classroom, and even with all of the baggage that came with it, he absorbed the parts of the teaching that were saying that, no, the, the Holy Spirit can be accessed by people today. And so he started asking around to see if maybe he could get a pastoring job, and he was offered one out in Los Angeles. And he was offered by a woman named, it was actually a female preacher, named Julia Hutchins, and she said, you know, I feel like I'm called to serve God over in Liberia. Why don't you come and take over? So William Seymour goes out to Los Angeles. He goes into this church. He preaches his first Sunday. This woman is still there. She hears him preach about the Holy Spirit. She thinks he's a heretic, and she locks him out the next week. So she just bars the doors. So William Seymour's out there without a job, without any connections, except what he did have one connection. So he went to this friend's house who he knew, and this friend took him in, and they started holding prayer meetings at this house every night. And pretty soon, uh, they started having sort of these mystical experiences with Jesus that they were like, oh, there's something going on here. And so some other people heard about it. And so this group began to grow. And pretty soon, they couldn't fit in the living room. And so they were holding it out on the front lawn and the front porch. And pretty soon, so many people were on the front porch, the front porch collapsed. So then they went and they started renting out um, an AME church that was formerly a stable, which is kind of an interesting part of the story to me because I'm like, oh, Jesus came in a stable and then kind of the Pentecostal movement was born out of a stable. 
And so they started running this stable on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And before you knew it, they were filling the place, not only every night, but they were filling the streets. And the thing that marked this, this revival, if you will, that was going on was the fact that it was breaking down traditional barriers that had been keeping the church apart. In terms of it was led by the poor, but you had poor and rich worshiping together. It was led by a black man, but you had black and white and Asian and Latinx all worshiping together. And so it was like the rich and the poor, and you had women who were leading and who were teaching. And so there was this like, this little piece, it felt like, like a little piece of God's good realm was breaking out and it felt like a move of God that was happening. But because we're so very human, within about 20 years or so, well, like racial divisions started to creep in, class divisions started to creep in. I think it was by about 1930, the Pentecostal church had split along racial lines, became the, um, the Assemblies of God church became largely the white arm, the Church of God in Christ, became largely the African-American arm of that church. I grew up, I was baptized in an Assemblies of God church. And so that's how it, it split and has kind of been um, segmented that way ever since. But there's been some, some little streams of it alive. We saw some of it like in the civil rights movement, there was a little bit of, a little bit of work. But I've been on a quest, if, if, if any of you read Solace Jesus, you'll see that like I, I was like, I can't let go of my Pentecostal roots. I grew up Pentecostal. I don't expect any of you, like if you don't come from that tradition, don't feel like you need to embrace it. Don't feel like you need to dance in the aisles. You'll see me up here bouncing a little bit in the front. That's just because, I, I mean, I come from a church where we danced. And so that's comfortable for me, but I don't need you to do that. But I've been like, you know, I just can't quite let go of my, my Pentecostal roots, even though I can see there's been abuses of power. You see people pushing people down on TV. There's been all of these, um, I, I think, like, upholding of, like, big faith leaders that is a little bit of a scary abuse of power. There's been some, like, name it and claim it, like, Part of the way that the, the, the rich and poor, that that divide started to come was that as more people who were wealthy became Pentecostal, they started to justify lack of care for the poor. And they started to say things like, well, if God is blessing me with my money, then I deserve my money. And if people are poor, well, that's because they're not doing what God wants them to do, so they deserve to be poor. And so pretty soon you had them neglecting the care of the poorest among them. And so there's been this like loss of this little gem that felt like was born. And so that's what's been happening in the U.S. But meanwhile, worldwide, some of the best of Pentecostalism has been fermenting. And many of you know, I spent four years overseas. I've been to 41 countries and I've worshiped with house churches in East Africa and mega churches in Seoul, South Korea. And I'm telling you, the global church, even those who are in the Roman Catholic church and in other traditions, much of the global church has a more vibrant experiential Pentecostal expression of Christianity. It is alive and well. And so one of the things that as, as we have come together as a church, I've been feeling a little bit like, man, like we're just a little bit alone sometimes. You know, like, oh, where are our friends? Where are the people who believe that the Bible is important and God-breathed, but not literal and not to be weaponized against people? 
Where is the part of the church that believes the Holy Spirit is accessible to everyone? Where is the part of the church that is standing up against injustice? There's pockets of it, but largely, I will tell you, I have been so disheartened by the, by the white church in America that has been so paralyzed to speak out against what is going on in our country. I don't care. God is not a Democrat or a Republican. It is not even like that. But what is happening right now with our current White House resident is fire. The racism that he is unleashing, the treatment of immigrants at the border. Like, we can differ on immigration policy. I think there's like a wide breadth of that. But I think we should all be able to agree that having 300 people use one toilet and having children separated from parents and having no access to showers, having no access to sleep, being able to sleep on the ground, that that is, that's wrong, it's inhumane, and the church needs to be able to rise up and say that. And for the most part, we haven't been able to. And I've been looking around and I just feel this like gut ache. And so I've been going to some, I've been reaching out with some different main lines and because I'm queer and because of my particular story, I have a pretty severe reaction to going into church systems where being queer is still a discussion. And some other people might be able to do it, but because my outing was so brutal, even when I even enter into spaces, like I was at this conference in Nashville maybe three weeks ago, and it was so awful. It was a Girard conference, so I was really excited about it, because you all know, if you've been here, I love Renee Girard. And, um, it was one among many things, but I finally realized I was in a room with a bunch of pastors who expressed support, but who hadn't done anything to move their churches along. And the people who were the most harmful to me were people who said, I totally believe in gay rights, but I'm not willing to stand with you. That was like the most devastating for me. And I actually had this woman from the Mennonite community. She's like, you should be a Mennonite. She was a pastor. And I was like, man, I've heard that in the Mennonite community, this isn't settled on any level. And uh, not even at the top like it is in some of the other churches. And she was like, oh, no, 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 no. And she told me about this one region that was about to settle it. And I actually think I know the one Mennonite queer pastor, actually. <laughs> and, um, and then she just turned to me. She was sitting like, we were having ta breakfast together. And I was sitting here. She's sitting right there. And she just looks right in my eyes. And she goes, but I couldn't credential you in my region. And I just, something in me, it just like hit my PTSD. And I don't usually bring that stuff to the pulpit. And for the most part, I've largely healed. But something in that, like I had panic attacks all night. I called Rachel at 2 a.m. I was like, I have to get out of here. I can't be here. And I told Ken, I, he's just like, it sounds like your body's telling you. Like, you guys know, especially if you're queer, if you've been out of those systems and like we've had such a freedom here that when you even go near it, there's this like, oh God, I can't do it. And I was starting to think, oh, can we find any friends? And so I started Googling. I told some, I think we did this at the church vision meetings last October. I was like, you know, I think I found maybe two groups that might be good. And I was like, there's got to be, where are the affirming black churches? Where are the affirming Pentecostal black churches? We found them. <laughs> we found them. We found our people. So Carla went with me. Rachel didn't have any vacation time left. And so Carla went to Atlantic City, New Jersey with me. She was, you know, we were suffering for Jesus. And um, yeah, because even with Blue Ocean, you know, like our network has been 10 or 15 churches and it's been not really growing, not that vibrant. Our national director stepped down. It's, and I was just struggling with like, you know, do we try and create a movement? 
And my friend Leah, who planted the Blue Ocean Church in Berkeley, California, we were talking, we're like, it just doesn't feel right to start a movement like this if, if we don't have any people of color sharing power. And, it, and if we're not even in conversation with the black church, what does, like, what does that even mean? And it seems like all of my gut says, God tends to work through the marginalized and tends to lead through the marginalized, if you see throughout scripture. And so I was like, gosh, like where are the most marginalized people? So um, this group has been going on for 20 years and they are vibrant and growing. And before I tell more and take up all the time, I want Carla to come up and just, just share your experience of the conference and what struck you, because I think we found a little treasure. <laughs> oh, okay, just... Um, it's just one little switch here. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. I'll turn mine off. So I also have some fun notes, like Emily. <laughs> they're, not very, they're not very well put together. It's not my normal, uh, if I was doing a presentation with my slides in the background, uh, with uh, um, you know, a very intent type of topic, because I don't think you can be, you can be direct but I don't know if you can really be, um, I guess, mellow when you're talking about a place where, you're, where you feel comfortable and at home. So <clears throat> the first thing that I thought about, and, and probably Emily thought to you because we talked about it, was this feeling when we walked in on Wednesday night, uh, we missed the, day, the daytime uh, events, they have like your, your sessions, if you ever been to a conference, there's always these breakout sessions because that's important to have a breakout session where you talk about specific topics and that's fine. Uh, but uh, we miss those. So every evening they had a, a praise and worship and a speaker. And when we walked in, they were still doing praise and worship. And if you've never been to a black church or some form of Pentecostal church, praise and worship is like key in the entire uh, in the in the service, it, it it brings everything to a, a heightened sense of of, uh, and I'll say the the Holy Ghost because that's what uh, Bishop Yvette Flunder said. It's it's the Holy Ghost that fills this room, and so the first thing we uh, you know I felt was like it's is this place of home, and then it's like well, you know we walked in, we were welcomed, we were greeted, but it's like. Well, what does home mean? And what, what was that? What was that understanding of, of what home was doing in, in, in our in our spirit, in our in our in our physical being at that time? So last night, you know, it's still like excited and feeling great. And I did, came home. I don't like some of you may not know. I've we've got. Uh, hi, Mari. Hi, uh, hi, uh, Kylie. We've got um, uh, a niece, Ashranda's niece, visiting with us for the summer. And uh, we came, I came home, and Sharon was working this weekend, so we came in, we had a dance party, and it was feeling good, so I didn't go to sleep right away. So I was like, well, what does home mean? And so I looked up in the dictionary, because that's what I do. I went to Google, because what else do you do when you, go, when, you, when you need to learn something? That's what you do these days. So I went to Google, and I looked up the definition of home. And I'm a... Uh, I'm not in anywhere, uh, not uh, connected to my English, uh, like, background for, as a, by degree, but I was surprised to see that there are several ways to use home. It could be a noun, 
an adjective, an adverb, or a verb. And what I kept reading through the definitions, the first definitions that we all know is the place where one resides permanently, uh, especially as a member of a family or a household. And it's like, well, that, that sounds right. I mean, but that wasn't the feeling that I had. So I kept reading, and I kept reading, and that's what I'm doing right now so I can get to the, the definition. And so the, the one that, that kind of struck me was to move, and this is the verb definition, to move or be aimed toward where you're homing in on something. And that's where I felt like we were being homed in on this, this group. Because when we walked in, and we didn't have to do anything. We didn't have to, to impart ourselves. We didn't have to, to try to hide ourselves. We just were, and it just, they just welcomed us in. That wasn't quite it, though. And I was like, that's closer. We're, in, we're being guided in this direction. But then, if you are uh, probably more uh, of the uh, Gen X millennial side, <laughs> you know what Urban Dictionary is. If you've never gone to Urban Dictionary, uh, it's, if you needed to know what your kids are talking about, that's a great place to go. I've got a, we've got a teenager at home, so it, it helps quite a bit. So uh, home, <laughs> the first thing, I was like, well, maybe this isn't the place that I need to be reading about it, says <laughs> a place where I can poop <laughs> for however long I desire. You've got to be comfortable. <laughs> I feel, you know, you do have to be comfortable sometimes if that's what you need to do, uh, but that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't the end of it. So, <laughs> but uh, it, w it definitely, you know, made sense, but that's not what, what, what struck me. What struck me was, I know I'm home when I can be me and still feel loved. And that was, that was like, that's it. That's the feeling that you walked into on Wednesday night. And every session, worship lesson that we had throughout the conference. And, and if you don't know uh, our, our story, um, my wife and I, you know, we, we searched and searched and searched for churches. I was not in church when we met. Like, I had had my, I, had, I was done. I, like the last straw for me with God, I turned my back against God. You talk about like having said, give it the big finger. I had did that um, by the time I had, had reached college. And my wife had had, uh, you, you can ask her about her story, I won't tell that, but she definitely had her, uh, her concerns and problems and, and trauma in the black church. But I, had, I hadn't, uh, I wasn't looking for a church, but here's, Here's this wonderful woman that I met who was going to church. She actually uh, was at going to St. Clair's. And I'm like, Sunday morning, it's like, it's sleep-in time. We don't, I'm not going to church. We don't do that. I don't do that anymore. But it, it was when we, when, I, when we did get together, and it was important to, to her to find a place of worship, to connect with God, but also not just connect with God, but connect with God in a way in which we could be a family where we went to. And that's not, and I'm from Detroit, born and raised. Uh, this area was kind of culture shock to me because I've never, I had never been not in the majority. <laughs> Have you ever been in a, in a majority black city like a Detroit or Atlanta? Um, <clears throat> Ann Arbor, Ipsy, totally different environment. 
So when, when my wife says she's going to St. Clair's, an Episcopal church, and I look at the people, <laughs> I was like, that's where you go? <laughs> but <laughs> definitely not anything I had, had experienced, but um, it, was, it, it was important to her, so it became important to me. Um, and so, uh, you know, we tried different churches, and uh, our son was at that, uh, well, at, at that time he was still pretty young, so probably like seven or eight, and, and then we moved back here, so um, and then we started looking again, and it, we found a church that we could, we could be in. It was uh, a UCC church in Ipsy, um, and you've probably heard uh, her speak, uh, if you've been uh, over the last couple of years, you might have heard uh, Reverend Dr. Renee Jackson speak, and, and we actually ran into her, which if you don't know how, how much I love Reverend Dr. Renee Jackson, now talk about feeling at home. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's always there, she's always there, uh, especially in, in a time where we need to talk to her, um, and, she, and so she was there. But, um, so then we, that, that church didn't do so well, and, and, uh, they, and uh, Dr. Ja- uh, Reverend Dr. Jackson left to a different church, and uh, a coworker of Sharonda had uh, told us about that church that shall not be named. We'll, we'll use a Harry Potter reference. Um, and we found there, and uh, we thought we had found home, um, but we were, didn't realize we were in the midst of a storm. Um, I won't say the word that I want to say, but you can imagine what other kind of storm that could be. <clears throat> Uh, but like, uh, but but it was that feeling of not being, and I love this church. Like I love Blue Ocean. I ride for Blue Ocean. You may not see my wife very often, but she rides for Blue Ocean. She sends people who have experienced being uh, in a in an oppressed situation. They've lost their families. Uh, they are LGBTQIA plus. Whatever that whatever that piece is. That, or that, that reason that you're the misfit that we are. <laughs> and it's okay, I'm, I'm proud to be a misfit for in, in this space because I've got a community of misfit, misfits. But there is still something that's, that was missing. And I felt that being in a space of amazingly smart, lovely, loving black men and women, gay, straight, trans, all, the, whole rep- the, the whole gamut, whatever you needed to feel there, you could feel it. And I felt that. And so it was, everything was just, just it was just felt like renewing. I actually, I was walking in a little bit late and Ben was saying, you look renewed. And I said, I feel renewed. Because when you are part of, when you grow up in the black church, there's this collective feeling and you know your stories. There is, you know your family stories. If I can, when I talk about my grandmother, her father saying, who is a business owner, who has, who's employed black and white people, tell her daughter's kids, you can't drink at the fountain, you can't use the bathroom while you're out in public, even though you're this, you know, a wealthy in southern, in, in, in rural uh, uh, Georgia, then you, you know that story. Then there's a feeling that, people in the room would understand. And if, as, a, as, a, as a black woman who's raising a black son, they understand when my son is, 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 uh, is, is brought up and is, is going to school and a police car comes in our own neighborhood to say that he looks suspicious with his book bag. There's an understanding that you get 
when you're in the black church, or whatever your, uh, whatever your background is, there's a shared understanding. And so that was what I felt. Um, and, and it's, it's amazing, you know, there's, there's other things. I, you, I love music, just in general, but there's, you know, there's gospel music, and you get a feeling when the music comes, and you know the pastor's hitting, hitting, his, uh, hitting his or her stride, because the music comes on, and you get the drum going, doom, 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 on the key points of the, of the ministry, and everyone's just, there's an excitement that's building. And they felt that too, that was awesome, you need that. Like, whatever your background is, you just need to experience that at least once. Not where I was raised in a progressive Baptist church, so we didn't run or or, or dance that much. So I was a little, you know, a little bit. I might shout a little bit. I did dance this time, uh, but uh, yeah, there's just this collective feeling and loving of being of God. And in this space, it wasn't just a connection of being loving with God and embracing my blackness. I could embrace my blackness, and if my wife had been there, we could have held hands and walked down the center aisle and sat anywhere and been okay. And that was so powerful for me. Um, So there's that. (laughs) Went a little bit longer than I, because I did have some other things I wanted to share. Um, But in terms of feeling at home, that was key uh, for me. Um, and and in a, coming from a, being a, the perspective of okay, we are here for a purpose. Um, that where do we, how do we, how do we find a place where we can be empowered to support the the, the marginalized, the, the oppressed, and love God and love each other together. One of the key things that, or there are a couple of key things, and there's all kinds of nuggets. I really hope we can get, uh, get our hands on some video. I know there's a couple videos on Facebook that uh, folks were sharing. So the video's not that great, but you can still hear the speaker. Uh, but when we think about how the church has used the church against the marginalized, I, the, the part of me that felt more connected to being open to, <laughs> to being open to being uh, to listening was the first night the speaker would reference and, and a couple of speakers referenced, I need to go back to the text. And usually when you hear that as you're a gay person, <laughs> if someone tells you they're going to the Bible to give you a story, it's just like, oh, it's, here we go. <laughs> here we go. It's over now because I thought we were doing all right. <laughs> But it was so powerful to have someone reclaim the Bible, not as a weapon against us, against you, against whoever, whatever your background is. How can I pull this, I can go back to the text and I can fight back with a a purpose and with a, a, a spirit of justice to support the people who need it, to build up the people who are the allies, to build up the people who need to open the doors to make the space for the voice of the people. The other thing that, that, uh, that, uh, that was important to me to hear, when we're in our spaces, and I know we have some very, uh, people in very various uh, places and positions in, in life, but when, when you are, <laughs> Uh, a heterosexual, cisgender, ma- a white male, when you are a person of, uh, of high economic uh, esteem, 
you can lend your name in ways to support the people who can't speak for themselves. You can lend your name. You can lend that strength that you have, not the strength that you, that the strength, not the voice that you have, the strength that you have to open the, the way, to make space for the people who can't make their, their own space because they're looked down upon. And I think that's important, especially when we're, we're in a more afflu affluent area. I mean, Ann Arbor, Ipsy is definitely not uh, some places that I grew up in in Detroit right now. And so we have, and we have a way, a, 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 the means to make spaces. And I, don't, and, and I wanna make sure that, we're, that, it's, that we talk through this a little bit, especially as uh, a lot of us are allies in different uh, shapes and forms. One of the, the things that struck me was that one of the, the, the speaker that, that I'm referencing was fairly, she was, you know, there's one, like, I, I love it. I love, like, love all the, you know, the, I'm a, you know, reverend doctor because I'm a PhD, I'm in academia, I'm a dean, and I'm making spaces for other people. But she took that, not to say this is who I am, which you should, but what she said was, and I, you think it's, it's, it's funny to me you think when you hear what she said, but she was like, I'm sorry, I need to take this second so I can tweet to all these mainliners so they know that I'm at the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries supporting this group, supporting black, black men and women, trans men and women in, in their fight. And check me if you want to. <laughs> and so that was key. And so we need to make sure that we're doing these things. And I know it's difficult. I do it myself. I can't, I'm in a, I'm in a, in a technical uh, role, uh, if, you, if, if you don't know, and which is very, we don't see a lot of black people at all. Mar barely you might see people of color. Very few women, uh, if you do see people of color. And so it is, it's not, like I, I work in Ann Arbor, so it's not overt, right? But you do, you do have to take, a, take those moments where, when you can, when it's, when it's, when it's not going to set you into a place that's, that's not super comfortable, but you're gonna have to be out your comfort zone if you're going to fight this fight. At some point, you're gonna have to take that step uh, and not be on the outsides, and, 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 I, and I hope I don't offend anyone sending thoughts and prayers, <laughs> but, but <laughs> you have to. We have to stand in this fight, and you're gonna be uncomfortable. Yeah, and you're gonna have to stand up for these people who can't, who can't stand up for themselves and say, hey, wait a minute, this person has a valid point. Do not dismiss this person. Walk, step away, uh, clear the way, and then step away. And let that person take the, take the, take the helm and speak from their heart or speak about what they need to, to get accomplished. And I thought that was so important because when you, when you, have, you have to have skin in the game. Yeah. And that was her skin in the game. She said, I could be, I could be, you know, talked down upon, and that's okay, because I know that this is an important mission. I know that this person needs support. I'm that mama bear, and I'm going to hug this person in public, no matter who my friends are. And if they are my friends, then they should understand, and maybe they shouldn't be my friends. Yeah. Yep. And then just, uh, just lastly, <clears throat> the theme of the, uh, of the conference uh, was a fresh wind. And especially being in Michigan or if you're a Midwesterner, you know what, what wind can do. You've seen the, you've seen the damage 
that it can bring. We were in Atlantic City, we sat in the ocean, we felt the wind and how comfortable and calming it was. And I, I love sitting on the beach and just, and just breathing in all of the, 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 the ocean air. But in this wind that's coming, and Emily spoke about there's a change that has to happen in order for change to happen. We have to look at, 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 at dif differently at how, we, at how we approach justice. And there's going to be justice in this wind. That was, there was justice in the wind is, is, the th is one of the themes of the day. And justice is not going to be pretty. It's not going to be easy. You might have those calm days, like, my, my, like my, our wonderful like, afternoon, like sitting on the beach and just taking in and decompressing and, and thinking about all the things that we have been experiencing. But for justice to really happen, it's going to be rough. You know, Emily and I were talking. It, you know, it's like I, you, you think about divine intervention and when God is working. There were so many of those moments as we, that we walked through the conference even through to the time that we were getting ready to leave and we're sitting in the airport. Yeah. We're sitting in the airport, we, you know, we're talking, we're enjoying ourselves. I had a nice little frozen yogurt and we were just, you know, just chatting away. And there was an older black couple sitting next to us and the, the, the wife um, asked about our frozen yogurt. I was like, yeah, it's right over there. And uh, she comes back, and we're still talking, and she, uh, she says, oh, oh, were you part of the, the, were you at the TFAM conference? And yeah, yeah, we're there, sure. And she starts talking, and, and we, you know, we're, we're, she's giving us the sto her story in the middle of the airport. No, no rhyme or reason. We didn't have any attire on that said, we didn't have our little name badges. And, and she says, were you there? And I think the re like she, she, I, she must have felt compelled to talk to us about why it was important. She, she, she was an activist. She said she was 71, beautiful, and a beautiful couple. And they, and they told us about how, how they had to, they were agitators. <laughs> they didn't say that they you know, disrupted anything. She said, I'll just say I was an agitator. And when we're talking about how we're going to proceed in, in being a church and being a loving church and being a supportive church of the people in the, in, that are marginalized, that can't speak to themselves, we're going to have to do some agitation. And, and that's when we're talking about a fresh wind for me, that fresh wind, that renewal, that reminder that it's not going to be pretty. There's going to be some times that we are going to have to lean on each other in ways that we can never imagine. But if you really want to feel that connection, because we need connection more than answers, okay. we need that reminder sometimes, we're going to have to take some of that, that, that rough wind, those rough storms, until we can find a way where no one else has to experience those rough times. They don't ever have to experience being uh, in, a, in a restaurant and being the last one to be recognized. They don't have to be on an airplane uh, trying to save someone's life and be questioned. They don't have to be those people who are looked down upon because they fell on hard times. They don't have to be the people who are, who are mistreated because they love who they love. And we're going to have to take some of that on as difficult as it may be, 
and find that wind, find our wind that will help propel us into being the church that the world needs. And it has to start somewhere, and it has to start today, and it has to continue as we, as in, in, in the fight. she got herself into. I'm like, I, she could probably preach. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up by two, by saying two things about the conference. One short, one a little longer. The short one was, it felt like we were with people who had eyes wide open as to what is going on in our country and culture. They were using the Old Testament for insights into that. I actually asked Abby to read that part from Amos this morning because I thought this, this is the kind of thing we're looking at. And it's not that God causes bad things to happen to people, to whatever. It's the natural consequences of human actions they cause bad things. And there was definitely an eyes wide open of like, man, some of the things that are going on in our country right now, we are going to be paying some consequences for this for a long time. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. And you might think, oh God, that sounds terrible. But when you couple that with a vibrant spirituality that says, but you know what? God's time is bigger than our time. There's always hope. And the people of God are arising and then you've got this joy and this celebration. Joy is like such a marker of oppressed peoples. It's like when we started, we said we want to be kind of a party people because you got to find that place of joy so that you can renew for what's going on. So I liked that that was coupled. It was like vibrant joy with like, we've got some wisdom about what's happening here and we know what, what we might have to do. And we're calling on you guys to continue to love your neighbors yourself sacrificially. Second thing was just more personally, um, when I saw that it was a group of affirming black churches, I thought, you know, I'm white. I'm queer, but I'm white. And I understand deeply the need to have really safe spaces. So sometimes just being in a place that is all affirming is just like really like just a place where I can breathe. And I thought, I, I don't want to like crash a party if it's really curated to be safe space for black pastors. And I wanted to be really respectful of that. Um, but it was made clear early on that that, that that isn't what this was. And that embrace came um, first in the form of just the very second day I think we were there. We were like, well, let's try and connect with like the Midwestern pastors and, and the bishop who's in Chicago. And I went up to the bishop and it turns out she's a huge Wolverine fan. And she's going to be here, right? this fall and I was like come preach I invited like three people to preach just so you guys know so be ready um, so she's talking all about Ann Arbor we give her our story and something that she said made me tear up a little bit and she got up and she just wrapped her arms around me and she just started praying for me and I started sobbing and she's just like baby you're home you're home you're home you're home this is your place to heal you're home and I was like oh we're gonna be we're going to be embraced. And uh, then she invited us to have dinner with all the, the Midwestern pastors. So we sat there with 20 pastors and they heard our story and they were just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And we were just connecting. And then they were like, write down your name and your phone number. We'll include you on our monthly pastor call. So it was this immediate like, come on in. And then Carla and I were having fun the very last day. Um, 
they, they, they had a more liturgical sort of uh, beginning and they, they had all the clergy who were part of them collar up and put their stuff on, which usually, you know, that's not my style because it always seems a little pompous. But man, when that stuff is done by people who have been kicked out of the churches and who are oppressed, when you're like honoring those who have like, I just wept. And they marched them all in and Carlos Samuel, she's like, look, there, there's a white guy. Look, oh, there's like, there's some white pastors. And of the seven bishops, two of them are white. And we were like, okay. And then they got up and she actually, Yvette Flunders, who's the head of this, started talking about Azusa. And I had just texted Ken and I said, this is like Azusa the way it was meant to be. And it's diverse. And I think there's, they talked about like, we want this to be an umbrella where you can be part of different denominations even, as long as you know that the Holy Spirit is what is guiding us. And so it's growing. This is only 20 years old and it was big and they've got movements around the world. And I thought that's a narrative that is not being told. We hear about all of the like anti-gay stuff going on in Uganda and different places. They're planning affirming churches in Rwanda and in the Congo and in Latin America. They said they're actually gonna have a whole bishop for Latin America and for in Asia and in Hong Kong. And I was like, Ken and I always said, you know, this soul is Jesus, like this, this theology, it's not gonna be for like the Western church to lead. And so I think this is kind of connecting us in with what God is doing actually in other places. And I'll end with saying this. I was there, A.D. Wasink, who's the pastor of the Iowa City Blue Ocean Church, was there also with one of her staff members. And um, she was feeling, I think, I hope this is okay, A.D., if you're listening, um, just a little out of place as a straight white woman. And I was telling her, I said, you know, A.D., I said, I, I think it can be uncomfortable sometimes for people who come to our churches who are straight white couples because it can feel a little bit like, oh, is this made for me? Is, do I have a place here? I said, and those are people that I want in the church because what it is, is it's a prophetic laying down of our privilege, right? It's like Paul saying, I count that all as loss. I count all my advantages as loss. And it's like, like I could go and I could start to lead a movement of some of these white affirming churches. But you know what? My instinct says, I need to lay that down and follow a black woman. That's what I need to do. And that's, I just, I just want to give like a, even a special like God bless you to you straight white couples who are here because I, I don't have any interest in just being a gay church. Like we are creating prophetically a space that breaks down those divisions. And I think deeply that is the spirit of the living God that is doing that. And so no, I know that you can go into other spaces and feel like, you know, you're, you're like, you've got a bigger voice and you'd be tapped to lead right away. And it's a little bit of a different feeling, but that this, I'm looking at some of you like, this is like such a prophetic and profound act of humiliation, not humiliation, humility, <laughs> not humiliation, <laughs> humility, right? And it's only when even the white church, we can have some humility, right? And joining in. I said, I just, I would just rather support a movement that's already happening. So anyway, with all of that, let's invite the Holy Spirit to come. <laughs> Rachel knows, I came home kind of bouncing last night. I'm exhausted, but I was like, oh my gosh, the Spirit's at work. I haven't been this excited in like 10 years, I don't think. So for those of you who are new, we, we often take just a couple minutes of either silence or guided meditation. And actually, I think we're just going to hang in with silence. Like people and babies make noise. It doesn't have to be completely silent. But let's just like invite the Holy Spirit to rest on us. And it doesn't have to be like some, you know, like if your background is not super experiential, that's okay. Like 
God comes gently in us as well. So let's just rest um, in this space where the Spirit is speaking to us. Come, Lord. Holy Spirit, I sense that you're just working and speaking in some of our spirits. And Lord, I just ask that that we can just say a profound yes and amen to whatever it is that you're doing. And we thank you that you have been leading us and homing us in to find the people um, who share a similar ethos. And God, I ask that you would continue to open up some of these networks and these places, Lord, so that we understand what it is that you're doing with us as a community and help us to be even more radically inclusive and loving and hospitable to all who are coming, to those who have been broken and beaten and battered by the church, as well as to those who are just saying, you know, it, it smells like the Holy Spirit to me. Jesus, I ask your blessing in the name of your son. Well, not Jesus' son. God, I ask your blessing in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.